0: So, Hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shaylin Jasani. Today it's my great pleasure to welcome a good friend and colleague, Dominic Barfield. is so a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care and is a lecturer in ECC at the RVC's Queen Mother Hospital for Animals. So thanks very much Dom for joining me today. Thank you for asking me. Sorry, mate. (laughs) So, Dom, today um, what I thought we would do is a bit of a a whirlwind tour around some kind of relatively common small animal poisons, um, covering some of the kind of older, more classic ones, but also some of the ones that have been identified more recently that people may not be aware of. Um, And obviously we've got quite a lot to talk about in a relatively short period of time. And what I thought we would try and do would be to cover... Kind of the most salient facts about each of the poisons that we discuss, and then hopefully we can come back in the future and discuss, um, you know, both a general approach to the poison patient and also some of the poisons themselves in a bit more detail. Um, so let's start with some of the kind of classic small animal poisons and. One of the things we're going to talk about in the context of each of the poisons really today is this whole kind of dose-dependent versus non-dose-dependent thing. So just to remind people that all of the ones that we're going to talk about to begin with are all dose-dependent. So in other words, the greater the exposure that the patient has, the more likely it is that they're going to suffer toxicity. So I guess we're better to start than with the vitamin K antagonist anticoagulant rodenticides? which is a bit of a mouthful. But can you please summarize kind of in a nutshell how these agents work and also whether this is a poisoning that we see in dogs, cats, or potentially in both? Okay, so I suppose that um,
1: uh, we're all familiar that it's a uh, vitamin K sort of antagonist. So I suppose the idea is that where that that sort of works in the whole coagulation cascade, and and it affects the vitamin K um, epoxide reductase, which is responsible in the liver for uh, um, for generating uh, a few of the clotting factors, so most notably uh, two, seven, nine, and, and ten. Um, so that's the, the the clinical effect, and it sort of depends on. Uh, um, obviously the the, the doses he said and that it 's had, and also the length of time that the uh, that the agent was was sort of ingested as far as uh, which we 'll talk about in a bit i suppose which, which as far as uh, with dogs and cats. Um, I think primarily see it as a as a primary poisoning in, in dogs, as in uh, primary, as in that they would probably ingest that the rodenticide uh, that, that's put out for mm. for rats and and mice, um, and whereas sort of secondary sort of poisoning would be more that the uh, the dog or cat has eaten a rat or mouse that has ingested that mm. that sort of poison. I, to, to be to be honest, I, I don't think I've seen um, many cats with rodenticide uh, poisoning. Is I've, many any
0: or is many many because <laughs> i sit here whilst um, we talking thinking oh, man i think i've seen maybe one cat but i'm not sure yeah um,
1: there, there's one cat that comes to mind that okay. uh, that that uh, did have uh, clinical signs associated with it there was only noted when actually surgery was sort of performed and um and i suppose that it was expected that sort of
0: exposure but uh but, and there's some oh, i'm dragging my memory here but there is there a public published case series of cat or I can't remember. I should have uh, I should have double checked before coming <laughs> don't in. Don't worry, it's but, fine, but it's I can't fine. I can't remember off the top of my head. that's no, no, fine. But we I mean I guess the point is that it's a possibility. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and you know, like I say today we're not going to go into each of the poisons in all of their detail because we don't have the time. But one of the questions I wanted to ask you was that if you are treating a patient that is bleeding and you suspect this is the diagnosis. What does that mean in terms of how long ago the patient would have had to have been exposed to the poison?
1: Um, well, I suppose it's, uh, that, that is a very good sort of question. And uh, I'd imagine that um, probably you, like me, uh, uh, graduating a, a while ago, probably had a significant an approach to rodenticide, which was, you know, do uh, to, to the, the the standard things for uh, for common poisonings, you know, em- emesis, and as there's an antidote sort of for it, then then give it that. And whereas sort of now, I think we're more pragmatic, and there's some more evidence in the literature that might suggest that. What we should do is think about uh, if we know that an animal has ingested that that sort of uh, um, poison, um, and, uh, and at, at that sort of time on presentation, then maybe we should think more um, about the the benefit of what we could do for the patient and also the long term um, sort of therapy, and think that well we cause emesis and then let's see if that toxin is actually having an effect, Mm. um, which is probably the the, the better way to go. So as far as the the length of time, it's really to do with the the half-lives of those clotting factors that we have. And and, uh, and so clotting factor seven in dogs is the shortest half-life, so it's around six and a half hours. So it, it takes a bit of time, almost sort of two days mm. to, to have an effect, but we don't see sort of clinically evident bleeding probably until four or five mm. days. So, so it does sort of take time. Um, so the question of whether we, we actually sort of treat these patients with vitamin K um, I think is, is is probably up to the listeners, up to the individual veterinarian, but mm. uh, I think there's, there's good evidence to suggest that we're not doing any harm by, by delaying that and d- depending on a uh, a test of, of, uh, of uh, clotting, Uh, clotting time, so the prothrombin time, and and see if that sort of prolonged. And and that's what um, a study impended, I think, about five Mm. years ago now.
0: It's it's interesting because, so I mean, we're basically saying if your patient is bleeding, they have been exposed at least two days ago, probably longer. So grilling the owner about what happened that morning is essentially relevant to this diagnosis. Um, But, you know, And and like you say, I think we buy into this and we have the approach that we now have. But talking to people in practice, and sometimes it's because the owner's insisting that they want some treatment. Sometimes it's because they don't believe the physiology enough to not actually give the treatment. So it's something that comes up often when I'm talking to people in practice about this is, oh, the one just given vitamin K on that day, you know, the ones that come in and they've just eaten it an hour ago. And you're like... So I think it's interesting. Um, And... I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you was that one of the things we know with poisoning cases is that often you know it's a suspected diagnosis rather than one that we've been able to definitively diagnose and in this case with the anticoagulant rodenticides it is often a presumptive diagnosis based on consistent clinical findings and then exclusion of other differentials but there aren't many other differentials either is is there a test that You know, we or a vet in practice could send off to say, yeah, you've definitely been poisoned by one of these vitamin K antagonist anticoagulant redendicides.
1: So, um, I'm not aware of showing them any, any uh, tests that's available to, uh, to us in this country, but I believe that uh, Cornell University run a panel. Um, if you say that it's been had a rodenticide ingestion, that's where you suspect they can have a look at, at all of those sort of rodenticides mm-hmm. that are commonly and uncommonly used. But uh, the time that we looked into it, uh, the RVC was probably a couple of years ago. It, it, you know, it's relatively expensive to to do that. Um, I'd imagine that you're, you're absolutely right that there's not a huge amount of sort of differentials that we can have for uh, those clinical signs. Um, I suppose that always the uh, the, the one to, to think of is uh, angiostrongulosis or, or you know, infection with with lungworm with that uh, coagulopathy that we uh, we can't induce in the in um, in the research sort of settings, um, but uh, that does does sort of happen yeah. and can cause sort of bleeding anywhere. Um, but that would be the only, uh, the only thing that I would have uh, uh, really high up on the on the differential list. And, and, and uh, I don't know what your feeling is as well, but I, I wouldn't say it's a common uh, toxicity in, in, in the UK. It's definitely something I saw more commonly in, in Australia, rodenticide. It yeah, just, no, I agree.
0: And um, I think, you know, talking to people at CPD and stuff, it it is still seen and it's seen in all kinds of places. But I think the general consensus is probably less common than it used to be. Um, yeah and I think you're right there with, you know, we've got this and we've got lungworm and then we see cases here referred to us. Don't we Where we're kind of going, well, we've got a couple of differentials to rule out and we end up treating them for an decide. Sometimes a few days down the line, there's a bit more history that suggests it's reasonable, but we've had the old case where you're like, there's nothing else. <laughs> so, yeah. um, cause again, I think one of the things that we have to be careful about is kind of pretending like everything is always definitive and just cause you're at a referral center or not, it doesn't always change that. Um, and this is going to be a little bit challenging, but can you please give us a snapshot overview of the approach to therapy? Because one of the things I struggle with is trying to concisely explain the therapy for this this poisoning to people because it is a little bit tricky based on some of the things we've talked about already, about time frame, etc. So.
1: Yeah, so I, so I suppose there'd be two, uh, two different groups of, of, of patients. So the ones that actually have active if bleeding um, in, in which case, then you need to give them some sort of blood product, and, uh, and I suppose that depends on what's available to you. So, fresh frozen plasma or stored plasma, which is plasma that's that's uh, been been stored for like greater than greater than a year, in theory, um, should have all the clotting factors that we're that we're missing. So we should have that uh, two, seven, nine, and ten, so the clotting factors, and and therefore uh, that, that should be sort of good enough to, to give. I mean, obviously, when when these patients do bleed, they, they don't just bleed plasma; they bleed whole blood. So, so in theory, you could give whole blood and that should have sort of all, all the factors there. Um, and then what we'd need to do is to give them vitamin K uh, at an at a appropriate dose, um, whether orally if the animal tolerates that or, or not. And, and that needs to be kept up for um, for the duration of the uh, uh sorry what, what sort of suggested for um what we think the exposure was so there's a variety of different uh warfarin sort of based products that have different half-lives and thereby you need to mm. have the vitamin k for anywhere from 28 days to you know even a couple of months sort of thing and and, uh, and i suppose that uh the thing that i didn't uh, actually think about when I when I sort of graduated was well how do you test Absolutely. that uh, that you've given enough the the length of dose so if we if we have a rodenticide uh, X if you like and uh, we we don't know um, how long its half life is how long it's going to have effect so if we come to that twenty eight days or thirty two days or whatever then we just need to stop giving the vitamin K. And then, then wait a bit of the half life uh, of of, uh, of factor seven to see if it's if there's any prolongation. So, you know, so I'd recommend people to to give vitamin K for whatever length of time I think appropriate. Then stop that, and then two days later, just just uh, recheck the the prothrombin time, and that's that's probably um, a, a, an approach that uh, I think clients would be happy with, particularly if you don't know uh, the the half life of it, and um, definitely. There are sort of super warfarin-based uh, drugs that are um, that have ridiculously long half lives. Mm. Uh, they might not be, they're not um, available to, to, to punters just going to the supermarket, but they would be available um, to commercial outfitters or you mm. know, people that work in farms or industry, and, and thereby, you know, I suppose we need to be aware that it's not just 28 days normal. is is, yeah, is sure. good. As far as uh, if we're dealing with the acute toxicity, I suppose that. Uh, you know so much of these that sort of dependent on um, the vet their relationship with the, with the clients and things like that and again how you how you uh, um, how you interact sort of with, with people to explain what you need to do but in theory you know the standard based sort of process of uh, causing amesis um, if they if they have ingested something and then having a look about 48 hours later to see if they have a prolongation of their pro time um, the, the, there was a, a study mentioned sort of before Penn and, and they they did that and they also uh, gave uh, one dose of activated sort of charcoal, which again we could probably discuss at another time, mm. and then um, uh, and then did that and, and only treated those patients had a prolongation greater than 120 percent of their the prothrombin time. So I
0: think um, and, and I think that that is one of the things that people struggle psychologically to buy into, and I know we do and we haven't done for ages, but um, because once you commit that patient's vitamin K therapy without knowing that they needed it, as you said you have to put it on, put them on it for a period of time before you do the trial discontinuation. We check a PT and so on. And I'm always like, surely you'd want to be sure that they really needed it. But then sometimes people say to me, well, it's just a course of vitamin K. (laughs) So so I think there's the, there's the kind of the, the, the stuff that, that we believe and we do, but then there's sometimes these kind of other reasons that people end up putting dogs on vitamin K. They didn't really need it. Um,
1: I think the, the cost is a bit of an issue sometimes because mm. you know it, it does depend if you 've got a, a five kilo dog jack Russell, that 's uh, eaten some uh, some of this or you know a new fandom the, the, the you know the dose that you need to give is actually yeah. you know going to be quite, quite cost isn't you know, cost prohibitive really so mm. so um, you know maybe it 's more of a financial incentive yeah
0: no, i agree all right let 's park um, let 's park those for now and uh, move on to another another classic poison that we hear about often which is ethylene glycol um and people listening will know that it's a main constituent of kind of anti-freeze products there was some um, something i heard quite recently that that i hadn't heard of before was the use of um of these products in ornamental ponds uh, where people obviously use them to stop the pond from freezing and then dog or cat drinks out of the pond and is exposed so it's just another kind of route of exposure to be aware of but um so we we know that ethylene glycol poisoning occurs essentially in two phases, and the first presents kind of with more vague signs, and people may overlook this as a possible diagnosis. Um, I think it's fair to say that most of the cases reported don't present until the second phase, which is then associated with acute kidney injury in both dogs and cats, and that animals may then go on to develop renal failure. So I guess one of the questions that that we are often encountered with is If I'm a vet seeing a case of acute renal failure, what sort of things might lead me to suspect that ethylene glycol is the cause in this patient? And is there any way that I can actually confirm the the diagnosis?
1: Okay, so uh, as far as sort of the, the things that are suspicious, uh, ethylene glycols is, is is in alcohol in in general. So normally dogs exhibit some sort of neurological signs, whether sort of depression or ataxic, uh, but they, they can sort of be um, just just quiet or they can lead to, to sort of seizuring. So it, it, there's a variety of sort of uh, different different signs. They can have gastrointestinal signs as, as as well, and unfortunately that doesn't necessarily help because that's such a, a common presenting sign for any. Mm-hmm. Toxicity, um, and and often uh, polyuric polydipsic in in the initial sort of stages of, of the of the disease. Um, there there are different uh, I suppose uh, different things that we can look at on a on a like more of a routine sort of screen if you like to 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 give us more more suspicion of uh, um, of ethylene glycol intoxication. That would be some biochemical sort of parameters. So so often there. Uh, hyperglycemic. Um, They can be hyperkalemic or hypokalemic, um, increased uh, phosphates, azotemic, obviously with the the damage to to the kidneys. Um, And uh, you get the, uh, the concept of an increased sort of anion gap, well, not the, the concept, the reality of it, a metabolic acidosis with that. So the anion gap is that, that sort of difference between the, the, the sodium potassium ions and the bicarb and the, bicarbon, the chloride, and normally that should be sort of kept uh, uh, constant around sort of 10 to 15 milliequivalents per litre. So if that's uh, unexplained to be increased, so uh, I suppose the most common Explanation of a metabolic acidosis, probably lactic acidosis, mm-hmm. so in hypovolemic sort of shock. And um, it, you know, if that's not uh, what we're what we're sort of seeing, then then I think that you know, with the with the clinical signs, then probably we'd think that that's going on. And and uh, obviously they, they do get some calcium oxalate sort of crystals that we can see in the in the urine, um, and, that, and that can be seen pretty early on. I believe in the course of these, so, so uh, about uh, um, about like two or three hours, I think even after after in, ingestion. So, as as far as uh, um, you know, I suppose that's that's what what we'd sort of uh, what we'd sort of expect. As far as sort of tests, um, there, there are tests. Uh, I, I believe there's a, there's a uh, a book that probably highlights them. I think that you're the author of actually. And. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but there, there's a KC there's a ethylene glycol kit. Uh, I think there was another ethylene glycol kit, but that's been discontinued now. Um, and um, and that will measure just ethylene glycol, but you have, to, um, you have to use it within the first sort of few hours of, mm. of presentation. And I believe that with these uh, these, these kits, um, we, we have used them, uh, the QMH a couple of times, but they're, they're, they're sort of um, only really validated in, in docs. And, and, and I suppose that validation, you know, what does that mean? And I suppose that if it's negative, does it really mean it, it's negative with 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 everything else? So, um, so, so that's that's uh, an, an another thing that uh, could think about. And I don't think they're they're prohibitively expensive um, at, at all. So you know, it's something that we could do. And, an import from from the from the states um, where, where it seems to be sort of more common uh, as far as the the urine goes as well there 's the uh, the calcium oxide crystals you can see and, and often um, antifreeze has some sort of fluorescent sort of dye in it, and, and uh, so sometimes you can um, you can uh, have a look so it should sort of fluoresce So if you if you use some um, Uh, ultraviolet light. They always say wood's Mm. lamp and and I always get a bit confused about that because, you know, wood's lamp should have a certain frequency and you need to turn it on for 20 or 30 minutes whereas I just thought a a normal blue light should let anything fluoresce. So, I don't know who wrote that first, but it I guess it's it's because of what stuck. you have in your practice,
0: right? Yeah, and enough. then
1: I suppose for the for the bolder or or the, those people that that uh, are, you know that, that better the, than uh, than me at uh, ultrasound, um, they can you can look for like a halo sign. So so what you're looking for um, is is like a, a greater than normal cortical medullary echogenicity um, with, with persistence of areas of less echo intensity and cortical. Medullary melarary junction and, and central medullary region so so you, you know that's sort of like a, a bright rim sign if 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 you like, and that's not specific for for necessarily I think like, or any mm-hmm. any sort of acute kidney injury um however if you you know if you're competent at that, then that would be another string in the in, in the so bone.
0: um so let me try and summarize i guess if we so basically we're saying if you have a patient that has acute renal failure, ask questions about what happened that day, the day before, the day before in terms of other signs and see whether they may or may not help you with that kind of earlier phase that that may have come and gone. And then you've just highlighted um, a variety of different findings that might help suggest that this is actually the diagnosis. The the test kits, um, as you say, I think, um, at least in the United Kingdom, there is now also uh, like a colorimetric dipstick that's available, I think. Um, and again, it's not particularly expensive, but I don't know. I get the sense that it that it will therefore also be available at least in the states, because generally that's the way things tend to flow with us. Um, but again, I'm not sure about it in terms of the things that you mentioned. In terms of, it's not going to be 100% sensitive as a as a test, but again, a a contributing factor. You mentioned about the fluorescein, so a variety of different things that might and and definitely the calcium oxalate crystals as well might help us decide. That we are treating a patient that has ethylene glycol intoxication, um, we don't really have the time today, unfortunately, to go into the whole management of acute kidney injury, but that's a, another podcast waiting to occur in the future. Um, can, can I just work just yeah. one
1: kind of about, uh, about it, right, with, with, with exposure as well, and I suppose that we, we tend to think of poisons, you know, being accessible. Um, but ethylene glycol is, is very sweet, and, and thereby mm. you, don't, and you don't need a lot of it. And, mm. and I suppose that um, definitely they have to have access. So if someone's doing, you know, a, a lot of, uh, you know, changing the radiator fluid or things like that, then, then that's a, a, a possibility. And, you know, if, they, if they're cats around that sort of area, you don't have to necessarily witness something, you know, a sweet product. Animals tend to like it, to unfortunately, like it. you know, and, and that's why in, in people they're trying to put bittering agents.
0: They are, in, aren't they? You know. um, I was trying to remember the name. It's something like dantamonium bromide or something. I can't quite remember the name, but <laughs> but um, because, yeah, there is a. Because children do this a bit as well, don't they? I think. And um, yeah. there's a a growing. It's a very small campaign in the UK. It's a bigger campaign. And I think some states in America, like you say, have already actually implemented the, the law that they need to do that. So yeah, hopefully one day. Um, okay. So we won't talk about the actual management Q kidney injury, but I guess I just wanted to ask you in terms of prognosis, if um, if my patient that I suspect has ethylene glycol toxicity has reached a point where they're kind of severely oliguric or completely aneuric um do we know if there's any hope for those patients
1: um I, I I suppose if I was being uh, I, to, to be 100 honest, I suppose we, we we don't we don't really know. Um, but I, all the evidence sort of suggests that, that in reality there there is no hope. And I suppose that what we don't know is that well we've we've never been in a situation where we can provide these patients with dialysis sort of indefinitely. And, and I imagine those cases that uh, um, that, that uh, say could in North America potentially go on to intermittent hemodialysis, and maybe the kidneys might be able to to regain some sort of function. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a time that I have my hand both from, uh, in my mind, sorry, from, from, uh, from reading the, the, the papers using particularly uh, for mepazole, um, would be or, or ethanol would be. There's like a golden time period where if you know that there's an exposure and you've got to act very quickly. And so I would say if you if you haven't acted like within you know three hours of actual uh, the, the the patient ingesting ethylene glycol, then then the prognosis for a successful outcome has got to be sort of you know absolutely non-existent. Really, you know no. they, they they don't sort of tend to make it. And sometimes we we do see. Referrals that that um, that people just want a second opinion of that that that's the case, and if we're confident of that diagnosis, then in, in reality, unfortunately, we can't do anything. The idea would, you know, reality would be to um, uh, you know to 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 get them to a point where they could have a kidney transplant or something like mm-hmm. that. But that's obviously a separate discussion and not something you no. know that's that's possible in the mm-hmm. in the UK.
0: Because um, yeah, because I mean, I guess we're basically saying people refer us those cases we can offer dialysis and we don't know how that's going to go and we don't know what the future will bring in that respect but we're basically left with offering dialysis or you know putting the animal to sleep and i think we um yeah it's 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 a it's a difficult one isn't it because we're also saying that we don't really have an evidence base for even if we support your patient with dialysis what's how it's going to go and how they're going to do and so on so it 's a tough decision as a as an owner i think to be faced with that absolutely um, I mean it 's
1: an awful uh, decision to to, to have uh, absolutely and and but it you know unfortunately that 's sort of uh um, the 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 grim experience of 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 it. I'm, I'm led to believe um, that in people, you know, that after intermittent hemodialysis, you know, that you might get some sort of function back, but that can take a year, and, and you know, and that's
0: obviously a separate conversation. Whether we what we think about <laughs> the idea yes, of let's, of let's of not that. have it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and um, before we move on, then I just wanted to kind of remind the listeners about the fact that obviously ethylene glycol is one of those um, the few poisons that we have and Antidote 4. Um, and so in some countries, formepazole or 4-MP is available. And then otherwise, you're talking about using intravenous ethanol or indeed potentially giving a suitable alcohol um, orally. And again, this only applies to patients presenting in a suitable time frame. And again, just exactly how long that suitable timeframe is, is um, probably open for discussion. But again, we'll probably hopefully come back and do a, a podcast just on on ethylene glycol because we've kind of romped through a whole lot of stuff that we could have talked about. So we'll hopefully come back and and do one just on this in the future or or on a couple of them. Um, I wanted to move on to chocolate poisoning just because it is something that we see pretty often or at least we get called about pretty often and um, wondered if you could remind us what the toxic compound is and also whether all chocolate products are kind of created equally in terms of their potential uh, for toxicity.
1: So, so again, uh, so, so the, the uh, toxic compound is the methylxanthine or the theo, theobromide, and and also in, in chocolate, there's a, a lot of caffeine, and caffeine in high doses can cause sort of problems to uh, to to our, to our our patients. Um, again, I, I feel that uh, this is like a like a getting a getting older thing, even though you know I've only been, uh, been <laughs> not that old, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, but you know you read in books, you know that that I had when I was a, a student, and things like white chocolate. It doesn't have really any any cocoa in it, and that's fair enough. And then milk chocolate has a bit more cocoa. Dark chocolate's worse, and then cooking chocolates like the evil. And then these days, though, you go into a supermarket and you have these ninety percent cocoa, you know, lint things. And yeah. I, I I imagine they're, other, they're brands the yeah. <laughs> yeah, other, other brands are available. Yeah, other brands are available. Yeah, not not going to endorse that or green and black or whatever. You know, the fancy yeah. uh, chocolates, and and I, I'd imagine that that's sort of a lot a lot worse. You know, it's all to do with the percentage of cocoa. So. Um, you know cooking chocolate uh had you know historically was the the worst culprit but now with these you know virtually 100% cocoa products then then that's then that's uh, then that's sort of worse obviously like white chocolate um is, is it's just a it's just a hint of cocoa it's, <laughs> it's not, we, not We actually
0: had a call a while ago about a dog that um had eaten some and we did you know do the calculations to try and figure out how much the dog would need to have eaten and it was it was like a wheelbarrow full or something <laughs> that it was going to have to have had. So. Yeah. Um, and, and what does theobromine do to you? And I guess, um, is there anything particularly noteworthy? I mean, we haven't really got time to go into to, to a lot of detail, but anything particularly noteworthy about its management as well?
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose that uh, the, the, the main sort of effects seem to be the effects on the, on the heart, so the cardiotoxicity, and also neurologically, so uh, tremor, seizures, that, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, and also there's no known antidote sort of thing, which... Are, um, which, which is uh, for, for most sort of toxins so you know again the standards sort of care about, I suppose the things to, to look out for would be uh, with the functionality of the heart so maybe you know on an ECG if you have that sort of facility mm. um, and just tailor the therapy sort of for that so it's not that they would all cause tachyarrhythmias mm. but uh, but they, they can do sometimes it could be bradyarrhythmias but you know generally uh, tachyarrhythmias seem to be an issue so then there's a question of whether you know uh, are they ventricular in origin maybe maybe we need to 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 give um, some appropriate therapy for that or mm. or maybe we need to slow the heart sort of down um, and then obviously with the you know with the seizures or tremors, and benzodiazepines would always be the the, the common sort of supportive uh, supportive management for that i mean I suppose the um you know, if we're talking about timing as well, so ethylene glycol is always that here. You know, you've got three hours and you need to treat it. And I suppose that the, the thing with chocolate is uh, it actually slows down gastric emptying time. So you mm. could, if you've could eaten a chocolate, and most, most of these dogs that come in you know, and eaten a, a whole pile of chocolate. And after four hours, you know, should I cause emesis and things like that? And, well, you know, as long as the, the fundamental rules and urologically the, the patient's sort of all right and it hasn't eaten anything corrosive as well, then, then, then you know, I'd have no hesitation to make these guys vomit you know yeah. four to six yeah. hours sort of later um the only other thing i suppose and one of our, our, our colleagues uh, reminded me about was, was the um you know you you could uh, put a urinary catheter in them to stop the uh, um the reuptake from the urinary bladder of the of the methyl xanthines. and and uh, and they, they do have quite a long half-life so so uh, up to like 72 hours i think so again you know it, it's not something that uh, that um should be gone in a couple of hours it can take a a bit of time
0: um, and I guess with the urine thing I guess because we don't we wouldn't routinely put a u-cath in although I don't see the, the reason for it and I guess um, promoting urination by putting them on fluids I suppose is oh, yeah absolutely um, and actually whilst whilst you were talking there's one thing I want so well basically I guess in conclusion what we're saying about chocolate poisoning is that you need to tailor your therapy to the individual patient in essence yeah. which is a general guiding principle and for everything that we do absolutely but, uh, and and good luck with all
1: working out how much <laughs> uh percentage of minds has had with all these yes. sort i of, mean
0: there are there are different um there are different calculators and things available aren't they but um i think yeah, every every practice probably has its own its own solution um actually we're going to talk about it later so we won't talk about it now but i wanted to just whilst you were talking about it um i was remembering To highlight the listeners about the fact that some chocolates will also contain, you know, raisins or currants or whatever. Well, raisins really. And that um, even though the theobromine aspect of what the dog has eaten is inconsequential, the raisin aspect may well be consequential. And we'll come on to that in just a minute. Um, So before we leave the more classic small animal poisons, I wanted to just kind of very briefly mention... Metaldehyde, permethrin, and the macrocyclic lactones, such as avamectins. And these are all potentially associated with kind of neuromuscular toxicity syndromes. But I wondered if you could just remind us kind of which of these tends to be seen more often in dogs versus cats.
1: Yeah, so, so um, I suppose uh, you, you try to group uh, three different sort of chemicals in in one sort of in one sort of nutshell. Absolutely, and if I look at them sort of uh, separately, so that the, the, the macrocyclic lactones or the ivermectin type type drugs, um, I suppose that they're more commonly uh, uh, affected with um, with with dogs in in general, okay? And I, that's probably. Um, to do with uh, with you know inappropriate sort of dosing, or if we're if we're giving them, um, in, a, in a say sort of off-label way for say sarcoptic mange or 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 something like like that, potentially potentially you have higher doses than you would for other other treatments or other sort of uses mm. of it. And particularly in say North America and Australia, you give a heartworm and the dose for it is microscopic, like it's it's sort of nothing. Um, you've seen it as an overdose in dogs as well. Well if they've ingested something that uh, that wasn't meant for them and, and the, the, the couple of cases that bring to mind are dogs that have eaten um horse wormers, mm. you know, the 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 um the owners sort of worm the horse, spill out the horse's mouth, and the Jack Russell has just uh, chowed down on, <laughs> you know, some sort of ridiculous five hundred times overdose mm. of, of what, it, what it needs and um so so, so that's an issue as well yet yeah, the other thing with with dogs um obviously the the collie breeds were are all familiar we're out with the uh um the uh the the um, the, the the gene issue they have, which was you know, formerly known as the multi-drug resistant one gene, which is now known as ABCB1. Sort of as, as times change, so uh, so collies, shepherds, old the sheep dogs, uh, the other crossbreeds that that can be affected sort of with that, and and I imagine with with, with cats as well. Uh, you know, I always think that cats are a bit more discerning to be general with, with toxicities. But again, um, I, you know, has someone iatrogenically administered the wrong thing to, to a cat, yeah. uh, at a higher dose. So, so I suppose that would probably be, um, what, what goes, what goes on. Um, metaldehyde. I, 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 I Predominantly, I've only seen it in in dogs, but that doesn't mean it couldn't exist in in cats. Mm. So I suppose my fear would be that maybe sometimes this is an unexplained death in in cats that uh, you know they haven't come home and and, and cause an issue, whereas mm. um, dogs seem to be uh, you know people see there neurological signs and, and take them sort of straight to the to the vets. Again uh, a lot of the time um, I attempted uh, actually to see this uh, uh, really uh, quite often in, in, in Australia and I don't know whether it's uh, the gardens or the problem with, with slugs or snails but actually it was it, they, they didn't go externally to find this, it's people had put this in their garden and, and didn't really think that the the dogs would, would eat it because it's you know, snail bait where there's people mm. sort of a bit more discerning with the rodenticides and that sort of placement mm. but don't think that uh, or snail bait causes a, a problem. Um, the thing is, it's bright, either green or blue, and so it's quite sort of an obvious, sort of, uh, yummy thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think dogs, are the, the, you know, the, the only patients I've seen with that, but that doesn't mean that, that uh, cats can't can't get it. Whereas um, uh well, they're, they're toxic to both dogs and cats, but it's really in the dose-dependent thing, as I said at the, the, the start of uh, uh, of this podcast. And but the, the problem is, is uh, it, I suppose not, uh, not adequately labelled, or or uh, um, not clear enough sort of labels on uh, certain commercially available products of pyrethrins for fleet treatment of dogs. And people think, well, it works on dogs, might as well give mm. it to my cat. Mm. Or you know, it's not clear enough not to give them a cat. And and cats can have like a, a, you know horrendous sort of neurological signs associated with pyrethrins. And and, and is it, that
0: uh, is that the most common cause in cats? And where people have. Um you know, p- treated the cat with a product that was designed for a dog, and guessed at how much might be safe, and put it on the cat, and then regretted the consequence.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. that that's uh, I think that's irrefutable, and I, I think there's a a, a lot of um, uh, movement to try and sort of sort this sort this out. Even thinking about like removing the product from the shelves if people are administering it to the wrong mm. patients. Yeah. So, so, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, because I mean, obviously, we—I think we've all seen cases that um, the cats have been poisoned by another means, but far and away, I think you—you know—I think you're right. That is our sort of consensus, isn't it? That um, that that's the reason for cats now. Um again, you're right. I've kind of lumped all these these poisons together, and say it's really just um we'll come back again in the future and talk about how we go about approaching neuromuscular toxicity syndromes in general. Um I suppose one of the things that I see, which I don't know whether you've had a similar experience and, and, and would like to comment on really was just I guess my perception is I want to be quite aggressive about treating these patients, but I'm not sure in terms of the decontamination and so on and um, I'm not sure everyone necessarily buys into that, and I, you know, interesting to hear what your kind of opinion on it on it was.
1: I think with decontamination, I suppose with the topical agents, then yeah, you, you've got to try and sort of remove that, and uh, and always remember, you know, from the. You know how these sort of products work. If you those top spot preparations, when they they use the uh, the oils that are on the you know, secreted by the sebaceous sort of glands, and so they coat the the body um, there. And and, uh, and they can be obviously the skin is what a large organ. I think it's the largest organ, and so it can you know absorb these uh, chemicals sort of pretty quickly. So to stop that from being absorbed, you need to uh, get rid of that oil. To so definitely decontaminating the animal is is is, is part of the uh, is part of the therapy. So you want to you really try and stop any any further absorption, sort of, from that. Um, and and I, I agree. I, I, uh, I struggle sometimes with the, you know that the, the you know, we, we all you know can cause emesis in sort of dogs and cats and sort of happy with that. And then you know you talk about uh, um, you know gastric lavage and what patients would you, would you do that on. But mm-hmm. I, you know it's definitely it's probably more of a belief than than uh, anything else. That uh, I believe that you need to be quite aggressive with with. Metabolism to hide toxicity in dogs and 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 also you know they, they do start tremoring a lot and they will go to a seizure and you, you probably need to get control of their airway anyway so yeah. and I tend to think by the time you 've anesthetized them um, and you 've got control of their airway, you gastric lavage you know and then you can sort of wake them up and and quite often they, they sort of wake up and they 're not as uh, as tremoring as, as you before. See that, that's
0: my experience as well that sometimes even if it may only be an hour later. They are being recovered from anesthesia from their lavage and they seem less bad. Mm -hmm. Because in in my previous previous life, um, I used to see people leave these patients without decontamination and they would be passing blue or green stuff at the back end 12 hours later and you'd be like, I wish you had decontaminated that patient. But I recently took a phone call from someone that's seen a couple of these cases and it had been four hours since presentation and about five hours since exposure. And they hadn 't decontaminated, and he was asking me, "Do you think I should still do it and The patients were both you know really quite symptomatic and receiving lots of drug therapy and stuff and again I guess part of our problem with all of these things is we don 't have an evidence base for yeah. for all of this, and every patient's potentially individual but um, okay cool we 'll leave it there and um, I guess I just wanted to um, also mention one more thing really which was that we have some experience here, and there 's obviously been some published reports um, of the use of intravenous lipid emulsion in the treatment of all of these three neuromuscular poisons that we've mentioned. Um, we won't get into a discussion about that at the moment, partly because it is kind of one of those things that, that's of particular interest to me and we may never actually reach the end of this podcast if we do. But again, I'm hoping that we will come back and, and do a podcast on lipid emulsion again um, down, down the line. Um, and so before we finish, really, I wanted to just focus on three poisons that have kind of come to the forefront at different times within the last sort of 15 years or so, um, and that not everyone may yet be aware of. And the first group um, were grapes, raisins, currants, and sultanas, which I'm led to believe are all examples of vitis vinifera fruits. Um, And I was wondering if you could tell us (laughs) what the toxic compound is and also whether these types of fruits affect dogs, cats, or both these...
1: So um, it's absolutely that the the, uh, the vitis or species are, are what we're talking about. And uh, as, as far as the, the toxin goes, I remember uh, about a year and a half ago being asked to uh, deliver someone else's lecture about this and asked what was the, the toxic compound. And I said, uh, we, we don't know. And, and you know, it was questioned, how do we not know? And, but, you know, it's one of those things, isn't it? We, yeah, we grow yeah. up and realise that there's not always always an answer. Um, from what I can find out, that, that, that there isn't a definitive sort of answer, but maybe it could be uh, an ocrotoxin, uh, maybe an inability to process flavonoids, uh, tannins, and potentially even excessive monosaccharides. So, so there, there is, you know, there's not a specific toxin that's been been found out. But, uh, but what what people tend to um, uh, tend to think is, is, it appears idiosyncratic, and 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 that much has to be obvious, you know. Otherwise, that every dog living on a vineyard would would have this mm. sort of toxicity, I'd imagine. So, so you know, and. Yeah, it, it, it just seems that uh, I think we'd have more of a problem um, if this was um, was was uh, you know, all dogs were were affected. And what
0: um, so given that we currently think it is idiosyncratic or, or not dose dependent, um, what what does that mean in terms of your recommendations? Say I brought you my dog and said, "Mate, my dog's eaten the grape." <laughs>
1: Well, I I think with idiosyncratic reactions, you know, you have to treat them on suspicion that the the worst thing could happen. You know, I'm a big uh, um, believer in being sort of pragmatic, but also you've got to think about the worst possibility. And if the possibility is that you could go into acute kidney injury, um, then maybe we should get some baselines and treat them sort of supportively, put them on some fluids and diures for for a couple of days and see how we see how we go. To be honest, you know, we don't know whether whether that's necessarily an effective sort of treatment, but at least we're you know trying to uh, uh, keep the glomerular filtration rate. Um, at, at least, sort of constant, um, and um, potentially uh, increasing the uh, um, the elimination of of whatever sort of toxin there, there is. So, I, I suppose I'd, I'd have that sort of set approach. I mean, just because we don't know whether it will be a problem or not, doesn't mean that we we shouldn't treat for the for the worst outcome.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I I, I completely agree. But I think um, I think it's partly that whole sort of say they're often or sometimes they're young dogs. You're basically saying. Want to keep your dog in a kennel on fluids for a couple of days. It might pull their IV out after 12 hours. <laughs> they're bright, maybe they're barking, whatever. And people feel a bit like, well, is it really necessary? And because we can't prove, you know, again, I think it's one of those things I, I have no qualms about what I recommend, and I recommend the same thing as you. But um, one of the things I'm a bit more challenged by, although I, I, I still know what I recommend in this situation, is um, someone will say to me, well, you know, my dog has eaten some, some of these products before, and they've seemed completely fine. Um, is it okay to keep giving them some well i I would um <laughs>
1: Um, I suppose that, uh, you know, I don't ever stop my brother feeding my dog uh, Maltesers when we were younger or <laughs> something like that. But uh, at least my mother doesn't feed um, easily to my dogs or removes the grapes and raisins. So um, I, I, I think, uh, you know, you, I, I don't think it would be wise to continue doing that. You know, it doesn't make sense. If we think that something could be a problem, maybe we we, we shouldn't have mm-hmm. it. And we don't know what the problem is or whether they, you know, can develop something later in life. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think it would be. Not, not the most sensible thing to continue sort of feeding feeding that.
0: Um, and before we moved on, I just wanted to remind people that as far as we know, again, it, it's, you know, whether these um, this type of, of product is raw or it's been cooked or it's organic or it's not been organic, none of this stuff... As far as you know, makes any difference, and the risk remains consistent. Is that is that your understanding as well? But yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think as well that the um, that the, the dose you need is actually quite sort of small.
1: It's it's not not a huge amount of, of grapes or or, or raisins to, to that has been documented in, in to cause the problem. Ones. Yeah, absolutely. So so, um, so so absolutely. And, and yeah, cooked or not, you know, Christmas pud that sort of thing. You know, it, it's uh, um, you know, there's a, a lot of a lot of uh, dried fruit in that, and that can be uh, cause a cause a serious issue.
0: Cool. And um, which kind of leads me on to saying that, as far as we know, as far as I know, there's been no reports of these products causing nephrotoxicity in cats. Um, yeah. I'm not aware of a report anyway, but we will move on and talk about lilies, um, which essentially we're talking a sort of very similar conversation, but in the context of, of cats instead of dogs. And again, do we know what the toxic compound is in lilies, or is that another one of those, hopefully to be clarified one day?
1: Yeah. So, so again, yeah So, no, no one, or uh, well, I haven't come across anything that suggests we know what the toxicity is of of, of lilies, and, and definitely it's only been reported in cats rather than uh, the grapes and roses it's Only been, re- or the only documentation has been in in dogs. That doesn't mean that we don't know if. it could have an effect in cats or maybe there's you know there's no reports of cats eating grapes or mm. or, or, or rather than. so um so yeah so with the with the lily uh, it's actually to, when we're talking about lilies we really mean the the, uh, the lilium species so the problem is with nomenclature is that uh, um, a lot of people call things uh, different things so they're, they're a different sort of uh, family so the lilyum species or the Hiram uh, sorry, Homerocallus uh, uh, species are, are, are sort of what we're talking about. Whereas the Peace Lilies, uh, which is uh, spenthophylum species, uh, or the the carla lily or the lily of the valley, they're, they're not actually true lilies. So so um, it's important to sort of make that distinction. That's not to say that they, you know, those uh, three that I, I mentioned, the piece of the carla lily, lily and the lily of the valley, could, could make your cat ill, um, but it's not been shown to cause any kidney failure. So we should obviously... You know, um, not not treat those with uh, um, frivolity or anything like that. But you know, it, that that's not what we're talking about. So we're talking about the pretty lilies that you'd uh, you know buy your mother. <laughs> um, for, for I have two stuff. questions for you. Actually, sorry.
0: one is: um, Does it matter which part of the lily is it? Any part of the plant? And the second question is: Well, I wouldn't give you lilies. So <laughs> sorry, sorry, mate. But I wouldn't. But let's say for the sake of argument. You have a cat living in your household and somebody gives you some lilies... Yeah, I should one do with these lilies. <laughs> so, um, so, so, yeah. So,
1: we all, all parts of the lily are are toxic, and and in fact, even in the water in the in the vase has been shown to to cause make cats uh, have acute kidney injury. So, so from the pollen to the uh, to the leaves to uh, everything. So, so yeah. So, so we, we don't know um, what it is, but imagine it's 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 in the in the whole sort of plant. Um, as far as what I do uh, having having lilies at home, I think um, to 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 be perfectly honest, I, I wouldn't wouldn't have them in any anymore, you know. And I think that uh, um, we can't, you know, if we you know, we can't control animals and they might not necessarily you know eat um, plants or anything like that. But what's going to stop them one time? And obviously, you know, you can't keep them out of reach of cats. So, so I think it's probably wise not not to not to have them. Uh,
0: I agree. And I think um, you know we've seen cases where like the owners said, oh, I had these lilies and I knew it was a problem and I let, kept them locked in the toilet and then all. Oh, husband left the door open or whatever it might be yeah. and then Bob's your uncle there's a problem. Um and even as you say, because it's every every part of the plant, you get these cases where they the pollen sort of falls onto the carpet and the cat stands on it and licks their feet. And it's just yeah. I don't know, I just um again I try and get people to understand that it's just not a risk a risk that we would recommend that they took. But um and in terms of the approach to kind of how aggressive and the actual therapy itself, I get we're pretty much talking very similar to the conversation we had with the grapes, et cetera, with dogs, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I suppose that, um, uh, you know, make them, make them vomit if you, if you can. Sometimes they, they vomit by themselves anyway, sort of after ingestion of them and then, and then, you know, put them on, on intravenous fluids and, and diurese them for uh, a couple of days, take some baseline um, creatinine sort of measurements before creatinine your ear and then um, see what those have yes. changed afterwards. Um,
0: cool. And um, we're going to, we're going to finish by talking about xylitol, but before we do, I just actually wanted to mention that um, I was quite pleased. So I was going to go on a campaign about it about three years ago and I never quite got there. And then I was pleased to see that some of the major supermarkets in the UK have actually started um, including a a warning on the packaging for their lilies about the potential harm they can do. But of course, it does throw open the question that um, what about the rest of the world, but also that these things are available from florists and garden centers and so on and whether we 're ever going to reach a point where all of those places are warning <laughs> warning pet carers about what they you know the lilies could potentially do to the cats and I guess the other thing I struggle a lot with is given the variety of products that contain raisins currants, sultanas, and given the variety of places that you can buy these products from um, it 's entirely unrealistic to think that there 's going to be labels in all of these places telling people about the risk mm-hmm. um, so yeah i mean it 's difficult because we we obviously do what we can to educate as many people as possible but um okay cool let's um let's finish by talking about xylitol because again it's one of these things that's been relatively newly identified um so so basically what is xylitol and what are some of the ways in which um dogs well that's another question actually is it dogs that we're worried about is it cats that we're worried about is it both so I could not
1: actually find anything about xylitol in in cats, but I suppose I, I I don't I don't know whether it could be an issue with with them. Um, so xylitol is a, a five carbon sugar alcohol, and it's used as a as a sugar substitute, and it's mainly used for um, for diabetics or people wanting a low carbohydrate diet. And quite often, I suppose the, the common thing would be say say chewing gum. That's uh, that's what, what's a common constituent on of or things to make things sweet that don't you know, require sugar. So toothpaste. Oral care products, um, and you, you can buy it. Obviously, um, if you if you want to to cook, you can just buy xylitol mm. like a bag of it, mm. sort of like you can can uh, sugar. So it does. Um, so what, what it does it sort of stimulates the, the the release of insulin sort of from the pancreas in, in dogs, and um, it's also been chained to cause hepatic necrosis at sort of higher doses. I'm not quite sure. Um, why it causes hepatic necrosis uh, and the things that have been postulated are like a, a decrease the hepatotelia adp and atp and the inorganic phosphorus so so yeah i'm unsure about the whole mechanism of action of, of why that occurs
0: and what are the kind of um, what are the sort of two major uh, things that we look out for with dogs that may have had xylitol exposure in terms of Clinical findings. So, so in,
1: in you know, reality, the, the first thing would be uh, the blood glucose to be they'd be hypoglycemic. And, and um, uh, I think I was talking to some students you know, yesterday. There's, there's not a lot of differentials for hypoglycemia, or they're all quite sort of defined. You know, mm. if I asked you to come up with differentials for vomiting and diarrhea, you know, we'd be here forever. But uh, but hypoglycemia, there's there's only a certain amount, and, mm. and uh, this is the only. Toxin that I'm aware of that that, that can can cause that. So um, so that's what we need to support sort of uh, initially, and then obviously like look at the uh, the liver function. Um, so uh, you know your urea, cholesterol, maybe bile acids, but also look at the uh, intracellular uh, liver enzymes and and any evidence of hepatocellular damage, etc.
0: And um, do we know um, whether those are? Is this a dose dependent toxicity or not?
1: So, I, I think it's probably, um, it's been reported in like case series so as far as i'm aware so that there's there's not really a, a dearth of literature or a, a, about uh, xylitol um and my understanding is that the, the the first effect that you'd see would be hyperglycemia and uh, around sort of uh, 100 milligrams per kilo uh, as far as sort of hepatic necrosis then maybe it's like around sort of 500 milligrams per kilo and and that that's sort of what i what i could find out and i suppose to put that into context uh, a piece of of chewing gum if xylitol is the first ingredient on the on the list um, would have about two grams of, of xylitol in it. So it, it depends on where it's uh, listed as an ingredient, about the percentage. Mm. But so you know, I suppose there's a, a significant amount you know in a, in just one one piece of, of chewing gum to, to cause an issue.
0: I think, um, cause, cause one of the things I've always struggled with xylitol is that there are, again, they'll remain unnamed, but there are some well-known canine oral hygiene products that contains xylitol, And I'm always a little bit, um, you know, whether that's a risk that's actually worth taking or not, because, you know, the people that manufacture them will say, well, if the owners give the guidelines that we recommend, there shouldn't be a risk of toxicity. But I'm, um, I'm always a bit like, why why would you risk it anyway? <laughs> you know, um, and and also the hepatotoxicity thing—it's interesting because I—I'm I, interested to see that because um, w- w- one of one of the arguments the manufacturers have is that they have decided that hepatotoxicity is dose-dependent, and that again it's you know it complies with the guidelines that there shouldn't be a problem. But certainly there was a time when we didn't think that, and we thought it might be it, it might be idiosyncratic. And again, I'm sort of not aware of enough evidence that makes me say I would ever risk it. Um, so I think it's another one of those things that, you know, probably, hopefully, there will be more more information on in the future. Um, excellent. I think <laughs> our whirlwind tour has covered a lot of stuff today. Um, and so thanks a lot, mate, for, for joining me. Um, and as we've mentioned along the way, really, there is definitely a few things that I hope we'll be able to come back and discuss in, in more detail um, in the future. Um, as always for the listeners, if you would like to get in touch with any feedback or have any questions that you would like me to um, to put to Dom on your behalf, just feel free to, to get in touch and you can email me directly at schasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can post on the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page or you can tweet at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. Um, and until then, do take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.